Hello, everyone. Making more sense. This is a bonus episode. Just like last week when I read an article to Jeff from The Economist, I came across a couple of them that I thought I would read out to uh, Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, and uh, just get his feedback on it as if we were on the phone talking in person. But here, you can join us. On the phone? What is this, 1995? <laughs> I'm using... <laughs> did you see this on the, on the Twitter, Jeff, where they... Uh, some parents gave two teenage boys a rotary phone and it gave them five minutes to dial a number or something like that. And they didn't know what to do with it. Did you see this? <laughs> no, I didn't see it. But, you know, having kids myself, it, it boggles my mind that, you know, they ha they don't they won't know what long distances. They won't know a rotary phone. Yeah, you know, all that kind of stuff that we used to take for granted. We used to think of as, oh, my God, you know, digital phone. This is this is, you know, high technology. Now it's completely uh, dated. Dinosaurs. That's what we are. All right. This is from the Peterson Institute for International Economics. It's called Bond Yields Are Not Good Predictors of Inflation. Jeff, I don't know what you think of that. And it's by Joseph E. Gagnon and Maddie Sarsenbayev. Let me read a few. You jump in at any moment, okay, Jeff? Quote, Bond market complacence should not be taken as strong evidence against the risk of overheating. The post-war history of the U.S. and foreign bond markets shows that bond yields are not good predictors of inflation. I'm surprised. Yields largely reflect the behavior of inflation over many years in the past, not the future. It is far from clear whether inflation will rise significantly, but if it does, Bond markets are not likely to predict it. This is bad news then, Jeff. Who are, where are we going to turn to for uh, inflation? We're going to turn to the macro, macro economic, economic models at the Peterson Institute, obviously. We need okay, the sure. countermetrics to tell us what's going to happen. And that's, you know, look, I mean, this has been an argument for a very long time. It goes back to the you know, 1940s and 1930s, you know. The same thing. Central bankers in the 30s kept saying inflation's coming, inflation's coming, and bond yields said, no, it's not. And then they said, oh, well, it didn't come because World War II. And the bond market could never have predicted World War II, so the bond market was complacent throughout the Great Depression. But you'll see after World War II, we'll get, we'll get lots of inflation there, and the bond market said, nah, it ain't happening here either. And the Fed came up with a bunch of other, oh, that must be because of even keel policy and, and rate pegs and things like that. So there has always been this tortured history between economists and bonds. And it's, it's, it goes back generations because economists think one thing. They have no skin in the game. They, they're thinking things from their ivory tower classrooms. And the bond market is what, hey, we, don't, we can't afford to make mistakes because we're out of business, whereas you can continue to make mistakes all you want, and the university continues to pay you because you create publishable material. Two different sets of uh, circumstances here. Let me read a couple, four more sentences here. The table below presents evidence that bond yields have failed to predict inflation over nearly 70 years in the United States. Yields are also poor predictors of inflation in three other advanced economies. The first line of the table shows that a 10-year average of past inflation is the best predictor of U.S. yields with an R squared of 0.82. The following lines show that forward averages of inflation have coefficients near zero and do not improve the fit at all compared to a regression 
on current inflation only. Thus, bond yields are not good predictors of inflation over any future horizon. Roughly similar results are obtained for the United Kingdom, Japan, and France. In each country, the 10-year backward average of inflation is the best predictor of 10-year bond yields. And well, I don't know, is that supposed to be surprising? I, I mean, <laughs> I'm just... I was, the way, in a way, inflation works is sort of like a jump diffusion model. It's not like you say, oh, it kind of slowly builds up and therefore we can we can kind of predict it. It's, it's, it's sort of like a stock market crash. It, when it happens, it happens over a short condensed space. So you, you wouldn't expect there to be a statistically significant historical period where bond, oh, bond yields over the last 10 years don't tell us inflation's coming because inflation suddenly change, suddenly erupts. That's not really how it works. And I think uh, also uh, bond yields don't necessarily reflect just inflation, right? They're no, they used don't. For collateral exactly, purposes, right. So and there's a reason why the economists spend so much time on fisherian deconstruction into its component yield components because there are other components to factor. And so if they're just factoring naked raw absolute yields, nominal yields in treasuries or something like that, you know, I'm not. Re I don't really see the uh, the uh, the uh, statistical match here. Good, good stuff. I'm going to read another article, a different one, Financial Times. And I love the title here, Why Economists Kept Getting the Policies Wrong. It's by Philip Stevens, and it was posted on the 18th or the 17th, depending on how the earth is spinning and where we are sitting that particular day. Okay, let's see here. I'm going to read uh, from the uh, Financial Times here. The other week, I caught sight of a headline declaring that the IMF was warning against cuts in public spending and borrowing. The report stopped me in my tracks. After a half a century or so, as a keeper of the sacred flame of fiscal prudence, the IMF was telling policymakers in rich industrial nations they should not fret over much, over much, about huge buildups of public debt during the COVID-19 crisis. John Maynard Keynes had been disinterned and the world turned upside down. And in the coming paragraphs, he's now going to start listing all the different policies and how they are turned when circumstances change, right? All the belief systems of economists. So you jump in whenever you want to, Jeff. Okay. So he was uh, in his first job after. Well, no, I would just going back to the previous yeah. article with the Peterson Institute. What we're really talking, I mean, they talk about bond yields being complacent. That's not really what bond yields are saying. Bond yields are saying we disagree with you, economists. What you're saying is that all this stuff is inflationary, and low bond yields are saying no, it's not. And think about the history of the last 13 years. Bond yields have gone lower, 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 not in a straight line, but lower, lower, lower over time. And every time they go lower, as they go lower, economists keep telling us, oh, bond yields, don't, don't rely on them. There's something called R-star. We've got all sorts of explanations why bond yields are wrong. Inflation's coming. We promise. We keep doing bigger and more things. The inflation's coming. And then you get a couple of years down the road, interest rates are lower. The inflation didn't come. The recovery didn't come. And they say, well, okay, bond yields are still wrong. Inflation is still coming. It just needs more time or something. And so it repeats this pattern where the bond market must always be long because it's too complacent about inflation risk or for whatever reason you want to come up with. And yet we see time and again where you look at the model, the econometric models, which economists use to tell us the bond market is wrong. They're even wronger. 
continuing. So now the, the writer's talking about his first job after joining the Financial Times in the early 1980s was to learn the language of the new economic orthodoxy. Kindly officials at the UK Treasury explained to me that the technique of using fiscal policy to manage demand, that was put to rest in 1976. It had been replaced by a new theory. Monetarism decreed that as long as the authorities kept control of the money supply and thus inflation, everything would be fine. The snag, you're going to love this, the snag was that every time the treasury alighted on a particular measure of money supply to target Sterling M3, PSL2, and M0 come to mind, it ceased to be a reliable guide to price changes. Yeah, it's and we're, that's the, the immortal words of, of Alan Greenspan in his 1996 exu, uh, Irrational Exuberance speech. Remember what he said? It wasn't about stocks. What he said, and I actually have the quote here, at different times in our history, a varying set of simple indicators seems successfully to summarize the state of monetary policy and its relationship to the economy. Thus, during the decades, decades of the 70s and 80s, trends in money supply, first M1, then M2, might have been useful guides. And it gets back to the idea, right? I mean, Keynesianism as a, as a whole was that, hey, we can control aggregate demand through government spending, where monetarism was, we can control it through the money supply. And the wrinkle in both is we don't even define the money supply anymore because we can't. I learned of a Ben Bernanke quote from you this week for the first time. I didn't know that he had said this, but it's very similar to what you just said here. The, the imperfect reliability of money growth as an indicator of monetary policy is unfortunate because we don't really have anything satisfactory to replace it. October 24th, 2003. Love yeah, it. and that's, a, that's, a, that's an amazingly profound statement that gets lost in the noise of quantitative easing and bank reserves and all this other stuff. These people know they cannot define money. They know that monetary policy is moneyless, yet they project this monetary image. They project this image of of technical proficiency when, as we talked about before, with these technical, they have no idea what they're, software, for example. They have no idea how the monetary system or the financial system really works. And going back to what we're talking about here, why economist models always seem to fail, well, that's kind of a big one, don't you think? The idea of if we can't control the monetary input, we can't even measure the monetary input to any economy, you can't do anything in your econometric models either. Your econometric models are going to spit out nonsense. It's garbage in, garbage out. And so the last dozen years, the last 13 years in particular, have proven that. And going back to the first article from the Peterson Institute, I, I wanted to ask you, did they include Japan in their study? Because J Japanese long-term bond yields have been a pretty good, reliable predictor of Japanese inflationary conditions. And I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of left that one out. But anyway, the, I don't the overriding have message here is, look, it, all these things are the same thing. The bond market is saying, look, we know you guys don't do money because we do. We're, the, <laughs> the banks that are in the treasury market or the German bond market or these forward currency markets, we do the money. We know what's going on in the monetary system. We know you don't do the money. Therefore, if we disagree with you, you probably should pay attention to us, not keep trying to tell the world that we're wrong and you're right. Continuing with Mr. Stevens from the Financial Times. By the end of the 1980s, monetarism had been ditched and targeting the exchange rate had become the holy grail. It was about this time that a senior aide to the chancellor took me to one side to explain 
that one of the great skills of the treasury was to perform perfect U-turns while persuading the world it had deviated not a jot from previous policy. I just love the way the British write. This proved it's worth again when the exchange rate policy was blown up by Sterling's ejection from the European exchange rate mechanism in 1992. The currency was quickly replaced by an inflation target as an infallible lodestar of policy. Yeah, and that's pretty much what uh, most every central bank around the world had adopted prior to the last few years. They had changed to an inflation target because, again, realizing that you can't – all these other things that had, had been taken for granted before, including targeting money supply, is no longer an option. And so inflation targeted had taken over. And then as we moved into the post-2008 period, it became clear that inflation targeting wasn't really doing much either. And so that's been modified with all these other instruments, including, you know, symmetrical inflation targets, overshooting policies, average inflation target as the Federal Reserve does now, when it's really the same thing is going, this is the same policy U-turn, not quite a U-turn, but the same policy manipulation and changing that goes back 40 years. And it all stems from this one problem. Two more paragraphs and then one final rhetorical flourish from Mr. Stevens here. Let me finish here. Jump in anytime, Jeff. The abiding sin threaded through it all was that of certitude. Perfectly plausible but untested theories, whether about the money supply, fiscal balances and debt levels, or market risk, were elevated to the level of irrefutable facts. Economics, essentially a faith-based discipline, represented itself as a hard science. And that, that's really the important point there is that's econometrics. That's positive economics going back to Milton Friedman. That's the idea that we use objective mathematics. So how can you, I mean, this is science. How can you argue against it? And he's absolutely right. It's subjective. It's faith-based because you can put together the most elegant regression possible. And a lot of these are, these are breathtaking mathematics. I mean, economists in terms of the discipline of mathematics have contributed quite a bit in terms of their understanding of the economy, they've, they've gone backwards. They, were, they understand less today than they did back then. And the reason is, it sounds like, hey, it's mathematics. It's complex. It must be science. It must be objective. When in fact, what, 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 the, what the author is acknowledging is that, look, this is not. It's, they're just throwing dartboards and putting, putting together regressions based on, in, uh, based on incomplete, in most cases, in some cases, subjectively wrong data. So, Jeff, let me, let me uh, delve in there a little bit longer then, because then I think I have been unfair. So I am always castigating economists, but that's not appropriate, is it? Political economists, as they used to be known, I, those are people trying to do their best. But econometrics, that's the problem, right? Yeah, but it's also economists who have decided they're going to put all of their faith in econometrics to the exclusion of any kind of refutation. You can never falsify an econometric model because it's objective mathematics. When that's not true, if the model leads you to the wrong results, you need to revise the model. And that's where you can fault economists because they never do. They always make excuses for why the math works out. And if the real world, like the bond market being low interest rates and and denying inflation, then it must be the fault of the bond market or some flaw in the economy or something else. The models are always treated as accurate predictions of the future, no matter how inaccurate they become. That's where you can fault economists. 
I think I need to carve out a, a, a safe harbor for political economists who uh, have a safe, you know, healthy skepticism uh, regarding certainty. But let me continue here. The real world was reduced by the 1990s to a set of complex mathematical equations that no one, least of all democratically elected politicians, dared challenge. Thus, detached from reality, economic policy swept away the post-war balance between the interests of society and markets. Arid econometrics replaced a measured understanding of political economy. It scarcely mattered that the gains of globalization were scooped up by the super-rich, that markets became casinos, and that fiscal fundamentalism was wield widening social divisions. Nothing counted above the equations. And yes, now that's that's, that's a yeah. hugely important point because when anybody argues with a central banker, the central banker will retreat into complex mathematics. And usually the person arguing, especially if it's in a political setting, and I know this from personal example, in a political setting, you know, the politician is never going to be able to argue mathematics with, say, Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke knows his math up and down. He doesn't know a damn thing about the markets or the economy, but he can retreat into mathematics, which immediately shuts down the debate. And that's by, in some ways, that's intentional, right? You don't yeah. want to argue with people who you think are, who don't understand as much as you do. So you just, you start talking about, you know, all sorts of mathematical things, mathematical properties and statistical, statistical theories and things like that, that nobody has any idea what you're talking about. And the debate is shut down. It presents yourself as an authority, but an authority on what? You're an authority on statistics, not the economy, not the markets, and certainly not the monetary system. But yet you can't argue against them because they retreat into this complex mathematics. And that's really what econometrics has done that isn't neutral. It hasn't been a neutral proposition. It has been harmful because it has, it has allowed it, uh, this, this strain of economic thought to penetrate much farther and to, and to continue on far longer than it probably should have. There's no correction mechanism where we can say, hey, look, your models are wrong, because then you have to start arguing the statistical theory of the models, <laughs> not, the re not what you're really interested in, which is econo real economy results, the real world, people's lives, jobs, those kinds of things. You end up talking about regression and equations and things like that. Heteroscedasticity, you know, you get way off topic. <laughs> well, I'm really enjoying these, uh, these new kind of uh, off-the-cuff readings, because I, I don't know where the conversation's going to go. I hope the audience is enjoying them too. Final rhetorical flourish, and then the article is over. And now, after Donald Trump, Brexit, and COVID-19, it seems we are back at the beginning. Time to dust off Keynes' general theory. Good stuff. Yep. Well, and in, in a lot of ways, that's, that's full circle too, because remember how it went in the, from the first crisis. The idea was, oh my God, we have a crisis and monetary policy didn't seem all that helpful. We're going to depend upon fiscal authorities to get us out of the first financial crisis in 2008, 2009, the ARRA in the United States, fiscal spending, all, all, all sorts of other places. And the Federal Reserve was sort of going to take a back seat and quantitative easing, at least in the initial crisis period, was sort of to guarantee that the financial conditions would be conducive to allow the Keynesian fiscal stimulus to achieve recovery. And then as the fiscal stimulus sort of faded, that brought the central banking and quantitative easing back to the forefront where it became more impetus up on quantitative easing to create the recovery that 
never seemed to be able to be created by everything that had done before. And now we get to, you know, fast forward to 2017, globally synchronized growth, the inflation. I mean, central bankers put all of their chips in. They went all in on 2017. And of course, that failed and fell apart, which left us, you know, even before COVID with, hey, we need fiscal spending again. We keep spinning our wheels going back and forth between this econometric monetarism, which isn't real monetarism, obviously, and Keynesian fiscal stimulus because nobody can identify the real problem behind all these things. Where is the real blind spot in everything? I loved it, Jeff. I hope you had a good time. I hope we can keep doing this going forward and uh, have a good week and I'll talk to you again soon. Yes, let's figure out if Japan was in that Peterson study because I think that's an important point. <laughs> we will, I will bring bonus, it out. Bonus episode. <laughs> Making more sense cubed. Oh my, okay. Well, 24 hour channel, 24 hour channel. That's what we need. Taking over Bloomberg.